So here, the word of the Lord this morning, a verse that helps us interpret Daniel chapter 9 and following. The word of the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For as many are the, as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We pray that your spirit gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we understand what your text has for us today, that we would be changed because of the power of your word in our life, that you'd be in the preaching and the hearing of the word this morning. In the name of your son, amen. For as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they are yes. They are yes and amen. So Daniel chapter 9. We have spent time in Daniel chapter 9 where we rightly should be on the prayer of a righteous man. The fervent prayer of a righteous man. A man whose very habit was prayer. In fact, it was his pr- his habit of prayer that got him fed to the lions. That's how important prayer was to Daniel. Daniel, who, uh, when God was judging his people, God listened to the prayers of Daniel so much that to emphasize the judgment on his people, God said, even if Daniel prays, for these people, only Daniel will be spared. His prayers would not even be applied to this wicked and perverse generation. So rightly emphasizing in Daniel chapter 9, prayer. We're going to now, though, see the full picture of Daniel chapter 9. And um, I would tell you that uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, verses 24 and following are the ones that get by far the most attention in Daniel chapter 9. In fact, in the, over the last year, it's possible that those verses have been the scrutinized by uh, theologians and preachers and, and, and saints alike in the past couple years, more than maybe any other verses in the Bible. And I would say that it is... Uh, it is flat out a crime to spend time in those verses without seeing how they connect to the verses that come before it, because um, it is truly an answer to, to Daniel's prayer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see the flow this morning of Daniel chapter nine and how it helps us to have interpretive principles for understanding the biblical prophecies of Daniel chapter nine and following. Right. That's what we've been doing. We've been laying the foundation of things as we work through Daniel. So Daniel's prayer devoted with a thankful heart based on the word of God, the character of God, modeled after the word of God, focused on his will, everything, everything set on God. Now, key principle for all prophecy Period. In Christ, they are amen. 
In Christ, they are fully and truly realized. Okay? That's how the Bible tells us to approach every covenant, every promise, every prophecy. In Christ, they are amen. Whatever else you do with them, in Christ, they are amen. All right. So let's work through the passage. Number one, the motivation for Daniel's prayer. Number one, the motivation for Daniel's prayer is that Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah. (laughs) Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah. We've talked about Daniel says 70 Sabbaths. He gets this idea that there's like 70 years to cover the Sabbath rest needed for the land, for the defiling of the Sabbath, fulfillment of prophecies that said that they would be ejected for not keeping the Sabbath, for not giving the land its rest. Daniel, I think the timeline works right where when he's reading Jeremiah and when he's praying in Daniel chapter 9, he's been in exile for 67-ish years. 67 is pretty close to 70. 605 BC, he was taken away in the first deportation. And he's reading this and he goes, oh my, the 70 years are about up. So he prays. He senses by reading God's word that something's about to happen, that God's on the move and his first response is to pray. Can we just keep that in our, in our, in our tool belt, so to speak? Right? When we read the word and we see God revealed to us in it, our response is to pray with thankful hearts, beseeching him. However, as the passage goes on, we see that there's a problem. So at first there's this motivation for prayer, but the motivation includes a problem. Because Daniel actually reads all of the Old Testament. <laughs> he doesn't just read this one little verse that says, oh, 70 years, and then... <clears throat> God's judgment is done over his land, over his people, and there's a problem, okay? The problem is explained in two key passages, well, actually, lots of key passages, but Leviticus chapter 26. If you would please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26, because Daniel didn't just read Jeremiah. I am convinced Daniel also read Leviticus chapter 26. And he knew the law of God. And we knew that that's the spirit of God's people. Because what does David say? Day and night he meditates on what? The law of God. The law of God restores his soul. What's the law? Genesis through Deuteronomy. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Leviticus 26. You shall not make for yourself idols... And you shall keep my Sabbaths, in verse 2, and revere my sanctuary, for I am the Lord. Guess what God's people did? (laughs) They made idols. They did not keep his commandments. They did not keep his Sabbaths. They did not revere his sanctuary. His sanctuary, where his presence Filled the temple. Who's, this isn't Israel's sanctuary. This isn't Israel's temple. That's one of the reasons why these blind guides were so foolish in Jesus' time. They thought that was their temple. 
It was God's. God's temple. God's spirit. You read the building of the temple. His spirit filled men with skill to build it. His spirit revealed the template from heaven. Moses saw architectural designs from heaven by the power of the spirit revealed to him by God. God empowered people to build it. God filled it with his spirit. God, it's God's, okay? It's God's temple. It's his sanctuary, for I am the Lord. Verse three, though, if, if is a really great little word in the English language. It sets out an interesting condition. Verse three, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments to carry them out, then I shall give you rain. I shall heal your land. You shall be fruitful. So if, if you walk in these ways, I will bless you. I will keep you. You will be fruitful. You will multiply. You will chase down your enemies and they will fall before you. Verse seven. All of your enemies will fall down before you. No one can stand because I will be with you. So I will, verse nine of Leviticus chapter 26. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Very much. Sounds like Genesis chapter one, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Sounds like the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. I will bless you and you will be fruitful and multiply. You will have descendants more than the sand of the seashore. These are the things God is going to do. Now, listen to the word, though. And I will confirm my covenant. Keep track of that word covenant. I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the supply and clear out the old because of the new. You're not going to have to store up old food because I'm going to give you new. I will bless you. Verse 11. I will make my dwelling among you. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will not reject you. Verse 11. Verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I will walk among you and you will be my people. I will be your God. You will know me. You will seek my face and you will find me. Verse 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you would not be their slaves and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. God broke the chains in Egypt and God made them walk standing up tall. They're his people. It's his covenant. For the sake of emphasis, I'm going to repeat these two verses. And I ask you to turn to them so you can see them yourself. Exodus chapter 19, please. Exodus chapter 19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Edicus. Edicus? Exodus. Yo. 19. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, my covenant, he says, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words of the truth. 
Yeah. If you need to, turn to 1 Peter 2.9. You may already know 1 Peter 2.9 if you've been worshiping with us for years. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 1 Peter 2.9 is the fulfillment of the if condition of Exodus 19. If you do this, you will be my people and I will be your God and you will be a kingdom to me. Mankind can't do it. God's people can't do it. We needed a savior to do it for us. So we believe in Christ as our righteousness. And because of what Christ has accomplished, we are a kingdom of priests to God. We are the fulfillment, the realization, right? Remember, Christ is the amen. Christ is the amen of all these promises. Okay. Continuing on in Leviticus chapter 26, I promise you this is necessary to understand the end of Daniel chapter 9. So Leviticus chapter 26, at, back in verse 14. The other great little word, but. But if. Verse 14, you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments. If instead you reject my statutes and listen, if your soul abhors my ordinances. Do you view God's law and his commandments with disdain? Does God's law tell you to do something that you don't want to do? Is it a burden? Then you're missing the point. Then you're either a saint who's deceived or you're deceived into thinking that you're a saint. Do not abhor the ordinance of God. Now, that doesn't mean we will always keep them. We will act in rebellious ways. But God's law is to us refreshing and freedom and true and good and that's why we want to be a repentant people, because when we break God's law in our life today, us, like us specifically, us here, me here, when we break God's law, when we rebel against him, when we sin, we want <clears throat> to repent because we want his law to be lived out in our life. Okay. If your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out all of my commandments and so break, here's the word again, my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. Okay, get ready. You need to put your seatbelt on, put the helmet on, get ready, okay? Get ready for what God's going to do to his people if they do these things. I, in turn, will do this to you. This is God speaking. I will appoint over you sudden terror, consumption, fever, waste away the eyes, cause the soul to pine away. You will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will come eat it up. Verse 17. I will set my face against you, so that you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. And you will flee when no one is pursuing you. That's not just how God judges nations. That's how God judges his people when they were rebellious against him. In particular, if you're like me, that phrase, those who hate you will rule over you, stands firm. Right? That, that 
that hits low. Right? Those who hate us rule over us today. Verse 18. By the time we get to verse 18, God's people should have repented and came back to him. But look what happens. If also after all these things, so after God has judged you for being rebellious, if then you do not obey me, I will punish you. I hear this phrase seven times more for your sins. I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Why seven times more? For the same reason that Jesus says. Forgive 70 times seven. Peter's like, shall I forgive my neighbor that sins against me, my brother, seven times? And Jesus says 70 times seven. Now, if you are the kind of person who's mathematical and you remember keeping tally, you've sinned against me 452 times. I'm almost done forgiving you. He's not... 70 times 7 as a number to reach. It's not 490 times and then 491 you don't have to forgive anymore. 7 is a number of completion for God. When he says 70 times 7, uh, he's saying you give complete forgiveness because you have been forgiven. Here, God will punish them 7 times more for their sin. Why 7 times? It's complete punishment it's complete judgment for their sins. I will break down your pride of power. Verse 19. Verse 20. Your strength will be spent uselessly. Your land will not yield fruit. So God's, God's judgment. They sow seed and the enemy comes and consumes it. And yet they still don't obey God. So what does he do? He makes it worse. Seven times. <clears throat> Now, at the end of verse 20, right? God's people are ready to repent. Remember, Daniel's reading this. Daniel's reading this exact text. Verse 21. If then you act with hostility against me. So I've judged you now, and then I've judged you seven times more complete. But if you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times. Now, we're not doing math. It's not seven and then seven and seven more times. Does that mean 14? Does that mean 49? That's not what we're doing, right? We're not keeping track of that math. We know what seven is meaning. He's just completely magnitude. It's a magnitude completion concept for God on his people. According to your sins, I will let loose among you the beast of the field. They will bereave you of your children. They will destroy your cattle. And then again, if you still don't turn to me, Jesus, uh, God says through his word, if you still don't turn to me, return to me, but act with hostility against me, I will then act with hostility against you. And I will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant, in verse 25, for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence. I will break your staff of bread, verse 26. Ten women will bake bread in one oven. He keeps magnifying the land's rejection of his people. Remember the curse 
The ground will yield thorns for you, Adam, as you labor. Work wasn't the curse. Thorny ground and futile labor is the curse. And as God's people in rebellion against him, he increases the lands, spitting them out and not producing for them. They're under a curse. Verse 27. Yet... Come on, Israel, you're ready, right? No. Yet, if in spite of all this, you still don't obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act wrathfully against you, punish you seven times for your sins. Further, look, look what these people will do. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. How wicked are these people? They are besieged. There's a time where they are they are eating their children. They are boiling their children so that their parents can survive. Can you imagine a nation that would sacrifice their children for their own benefit? Can you imagine a nation? What kind of nation would eat your own kids so that moms and dads could live? What kind of nation would consume children so that we could boast in comfort? What kind of nation would do such a thing? I know one. I know a lot of them. I live in one. See, we lie. We are so prideful as a people. We read the stories in the Old Testament when they eat their children and we judge them. How could you eat your child? How could you eat the flesh of your child so that you could live? I'd rather starve to death. Is what I say. And most people would say, I'd rather starve to death than to eat my kid. Right? That's kind of morality 101, right? As you kind of spit it out there. Except it's not true. We're not, we're not better. Americans will sacrifice our kids in a heartbeat to satisfy our own desires, our own hunger. <clears throat> This is now God's, God's complete judgment on his people. How many times has he done this now? Four times? God's seven times he keeps judging his people. And look at where they're at now. They're eating the flesh of their sons and daughters. He will destroy your high places. What's a high place? It's the place where you worship your false gods. He will destroy them. The American dollar? Your wealth, your indulgence, your comfort, your dreams. He tears them down. He cuts down the incense altars. He heaped the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. God says, to this people. He will lay waste to your cities and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And God says, I will not smell your soothing aromas. Your sacrifices are dead to me. Your worship is dead. I do not accept it, God says, as he's judging his people. And then he continues to make the land more desolate. 
Even the enemies who settle in it will be appalled over you. And you I will scatter. Your land will become desolate. And verse 34. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of desolation. Interesting word, right? For Daniel, the word desolations. All the Sabbaths. The days of desolation, which you are in the enemy's land, it is a desolation for God's people to be in exile. It is a desolation for God not to be inhabiting and dwelling with his people and walking with them. And all the days of the desolation will observe the rest, which it did not deserve, did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living in it. Then he goes on verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of the forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting in hostility against them. God said they were hostile to me. I was hostile to them. We were enemies. To bring them out of the land. Okay, now listen. Verse 41. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled. So that they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Adam, with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land, verse 43, for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for the Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. Meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of all of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant, God says, with them. For I am the Lord their God. I will remember, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors. Hear what God said? They don't remember my covenant. I will remember my covenant for them and will benefit for them because I remember the covenant and I don't change, God says, for I am the Lord their God. Verse 45, but I will remember them, the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. The God who redeemed is the God who remembers his covenant. And he will remember it for his people, and he will restore them. Now, back to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Daniel knows that the people haven't repented. The 70 years are up. They should be able to go back. But there's an if. If. They continue to abhor his statutes. If they continue to reject him, their judgment is not done. Okay? The judgment is not done. Let me read to you a few verses out of Deuteronomy chapter 30 to help wrap this up. This concept in a bow of the judgment. Deuteronomy 30, 
Starting in verse 1, Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be written, sure it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Okay? When you remember all the blessings and the curses and you've been banished. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and your soul according to all that I commanded you today and to your sons. So now they've repented. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and you will gather you again and he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or to the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. When first Peter writes, when Peter is writing through the power of the Spirit to God's people, they are scattered. And in the midst of being scattered, they are told what? That they are actually a people. That they are a holy nation. That they are God's own possessions. When this people are scattered, God promises that to them. He circumcises their heart. We use a different word for it from John chapter 3, verse 3. They've been born again. Your heart needs to be changed. You need a new heart. The circumcision of the flesh is not the end. That circumcision that they were given from the Abrahamic covenant was not the end. It's a man is in Christ who circumcises not the flesh, but the heart through the power of the spirit. And notice that the result that they're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. What does that sound like to you? Is it not the greatest commandment from the mouth of Jesus to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? And remember, what's he summarizing when he says this? He's summarizing the law. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So Jeremiah 31, 33 tells us that this is the covenant which God will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord, that he will put his law within their hearts and he will write on it. So he's not writing on tablets of stone now. He's writing the law on your hearts. Why? Because your heart's been circumcised. Why? Because you've been born again. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Interesting language, right? This new covenant. They will not have to teach each other for every man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And then Matthew 5, 17. Don't think I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, Jesus says. He came to fulfill the law. Why? Because we couldn't. God had to remember his covenant on our behalf and had to fulfill the conditions of the covenant so that we could live out the blessing, which is to love God and love our neighbor. And we can't 
So we need a heart given to us by God so that we can do this work. Daniel knows this when he's praying. And so listen to what he prays. So first we've talked about his motivation. He reads and it's time. It's been 70 years. It's coming. But there's a problem that people haven't repented. And God says seven times more judgments coming on his people. Because we keep doing the same things that we're supposed to be doing. Daniel reads this. And now the request he gives in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 15. And he starts with the foundation of who God is and what he's done, which has to always be the basis of our prayer. Listen to what he says. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. God, you've done it. You've redeemed us, you've brought us out, you deliver it. So the foundation is who God is and what he's done. And then you follow that with confession and repentance. We have sinned. We have been wicked, Daniel says. We've sinned. We've been wicked. And Daniel Chapter 9. This is after he's confessed, open shame to us. Open shame. We've sinned. Verse 16. He confesses, after he confesses that he's been sinned, he asks the Lord to remove the wrath and judgment that they're under. Verse 16. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, Let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem, and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Listen to that. He's not saying, you're God. You haven't delivered us. He's not accusing God at all. He doesn't look at judgment and difficulties and exile and continue judgment and says, where are you, O God? He doesn't shake his fist at God. Shut your mouth, old man, when you speak to God that way. You perverse, wicked, blind man. How dare you accuse God for not being good? How dare you boastful, sinful, arrogant people to accuse God of not being good because you're under his judgment and you're under his hardship. What does Daniel say? We have sinned, God. Our iniquity deserves this and more. He's not praying. He's not asking God, God, just give us a break. All right, fulfill your promises and let's move forward. And he goes, no, no, God, our sins deserve more. Our sins deserve seven times seven times seven times seven judgment, God. Because we've continued to refuse to follow you. But now look what he says in verse 17. So now, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. God, we've been robbed of the joy of your presence. Your face has looked on us with hatred and with anger, but we want you to look upon us with joy and light 
and kindness. We want you. You see what he wants? He wants God. He wants God himself as his reward. Heal. Verse 18. Oh God, incline your arts. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes. See our desolation. See our city, which is called by your name. And we're not presenting to you our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. We don't deserve it, God, but because you are compassionate. Verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen. Take action. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Listen, saints. Daniel is praying the prayer that God's people should have been praying. It's called intercession. It's called intercession. God's people should have been praying. He's praying on behalf of the people who are not praying this prayer. And he's saying, your people don't deserve this, God, but for the sake of your name, heal your land, please. He longs to see the land healed and he knows they don't deserve it. And so he is praying to God. And that's what we hear in the answer, the answer to the prayer from Gabriel. The answer comes in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While he was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. See what Daniel's doing? He confesses his sin and the prayers of, and the sins of his people. You know why we start our time together praying? How do we start? God, you are holy and worthy and just. We have sinned against you as individuals. We repent and we ask for you to grant us humbleness. And our people have sinned against you. Because that's how we're supposed to pray. Especially when we live in exile. Especially when we live. It's weird though. We're in Babylonian captivity, but we're not in exile, right? Because we are his people. First Peter 2, 9. And yet we're surrounded by Babylon. It's a good prayer. Now, finally, we get to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. But fear not. I don't even have that much to say about this verse and the few following because I don't actually think there's much that needs to truly be said about it at least not at this point in time okay Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 is Gabriel's response from God to comfort Daniel please remember that whatever else is happening in the rest of Daniel chapter 9 it is listen to what Gabriel says God gave me instruction. Oh, oh, Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, to give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. When you started to pray, Daniel, God commanded me to come comfort you with this response, that you would know your prayers were answered. Okay, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks 
technically in the Hebrews, 77s. Um, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to do a bunch of things. Now, a couple, let's say a couple things about the 70 weeks. First of all, even if you have a very detailed interpretation and understanding of what you think these 70 weeks are, of when they start and when they end, I will find 10 other people that have a different interpretation of when you think this starts and when you think it ends. It's been very difficult. Even the people who have very, very detailed timelines, someone like MacArthur, who very, who, who has a very, um, a very dogmatic laid out interpretation of these 70 weeks, of when the 70 weeks starts and when it ends with Messiah, even he is wishy-washy on when it starts and when it ends. Why? I actually think God didn't want us to know exactly when it started and exactly when it ended. Um, uh, 70 is an interesting number. 77s, is that not an interesting number? After all that we've looked at? God is judging his people seven more times. 70. So, where the scriptures are clear, I want to be clear, where the interpretation seems to have more to it, in the same way that you don't forgive 490 times, and then you don't have to get forgive 491. In the same way that when God says he's judging his people seven more times, here were 70 weeks. I think it is biblically faithful to not be tied to specifically 490 years. Because God could have said 490 years if he wanted to. Okay? And here's some implications of it. Yes, Daniel, God has heard your prayer and God will deliver your people. But yes, Daniel, you're still being judged. <laughs> when you don't reach, when, when all these promises aren't fulfilled in 70 years, don't think God has forgotten you or forsaken you. First Peter chapter one, verse 13 says that the prophets of old searched to figure out what the spirit of Christ in, in them were pointing to. The spirit of Christ in Daniel was pointing to Christ. And it was still cloudy for him and he searched it, but he was pointing towards Christ. And let me just describe to you what happens in these 70 weeks, the result at the end. <clears throat> To finish the transgressions. It's an interesting phrase. To make an end of sin. Isaiah 40 verse 2. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. She was judged double, but was the sins were removed. 623 from the book of Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Who made an end to sin? Was that not Christ on the cross? It's the only way I know how to listen to that language. To make an atonement for iniquity. 
Leviticus 16 was the day of atonement and God's people continued went to the temple and made atonement for the sins of God's people. But they had to do it year after year because the blood of bulls and goats never took away iniquity, never made atonement. Where is atonement for sin made from the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ on the cross? To bring everlasting righteousness. Who brings everlasting righteousness? Well, for example, Psalm 119 is, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, O God, and your law is truth. Who is the king who brings everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to to anoint the most holy? And place was added. Doesn't have to be there. To anoint the most holy. So just some thoughts about what else is happening in this passage. It says the Messiah is cut off. It talks about a destruction and a trampling of God's sanctuary from a prince. Remember that the temple was destroyed and trampled under in 70 AD when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and pagans trampled the most holy place. And now perhaps probably the maybe most unique interpretation that maybe you're not used to hearing that I am suspicious of. I would not die on the stake for this interpretation because he will make a covenant with many for one week. He is not clearly identified, but because there's one that comes later that does an abomination that causes desolation to combat the covenant that he makes for many for one week, I am, I think he is the Messiah who makes a covenant. I think he made a new covenant in his blood. I think there's details going on in the 70 weeks of Daniel that is supposed to focus to the death, resurrection, ascension, and lordship and reign of Jesus Christ. And that is the focus. That's the emphasis. That's the encouragement. Remember, Daniel is being encouraged by this passage. Daniel's being comforted by it. And in the middle of this week, remember, he puts a stop to sacrifices. And how it fits with the interpretation is Christ the Messiah did put a stop to all the sacrifices, never to be started again, because Christ alone is the one true sacrifice. So... Like Daniel, I do pray that this passage is an encouragement to you. Because it is right to see in our own land the judgments of God on our people. But my exhortation to you as you deal with these prophecies, know that the purpose of the prophecy finds its amen in Jesus. And know that this particular prophecy was meant to comfort Daniel and to tell him to trust in the redeeming work of God. Now I would tell you, I'm very loose on what the day of the Lord judgment stuff looks forward, moving forward. I don't know. I know it sounds terrible. I don't know all the plans that are hidden. Why? Because they're the secret things of God. Listen, the secret things of God are his. When Jesus says, no one knows, not even I know when this end will come. He's not saying that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, doesn't know. See, there are secret things that are God's for him to know, and we don't need to know. I want you to think about it. 
when Jesus returns, how does it affect us today what happens after when Jesus returns? You, all we know is that Jesus returns. That's what we have to know because he promised that he would. He's going to physically and he's going to establish his kingdom. Whatever these truths are, they have to strengthen you to fight faithfully today to cling to him and his promises. This 70 weeks is comfort to his people as it's amen in Christ. And for us saints, um, whatever prayer life you've had, you need to double it. Whatever prayer life you've had, you need to times it by seven. Uh huh. Times it by seven. We need wisdom. We need. We need to see. We need to have the joy of the Lord as our strength, as perhaps He's judging and handing over our nation. And even if we remain in exile, physically here on earth, we know that we're His people, and we need to cling to Him and live. Okay. It's Daniel chapter 9. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. And we pray that whatever secret things are yours, that we're satisfied with you keeping them secret, and whatever you revealed to us about them, that we cling to them knowing that you've done so to comfort your people and to remind us of your lordship and that it helps us in our evangelism because we get to declare that you come to judge the wicked. And you will judge the earth along with it. So we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.